What are we doing here? Hey, Aaron. Hey. It's been a week. How's your back? Oh, oh, yeah. Good question. Um, so I didn't fracture a vertebra. So you're just uh, being a bitch. I, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I, uh, I got my x-ray results back that night, Monday night, and, uh. I don't have a fractured vertebra, and the best guess is that I do not have a herniated disc. So my doctor thinks I just tore a muscle or ligament, and it's been getting a little bit better. It's still weird, like certain positions hurt, like sitting hurts. I don't know why, but nothing, like standing is fine. So, I don't is know. Is the vertebra the plural of vertebrae? I think, I think it's the opposite. I think, whoa, 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 whoa. Here we go. Vertebra. Each vertebra with an a, uh, an a, not an ae, is each of the series of small bones forming the backbone. And so I'm pretty sure vertebrae is the plural. And actually, hopefully, uh, Miss Julie, Mrs. Julie McConathy, ooh, what's her, what's her, oh man, Rankin, uh, Rankin. Sorry, Miss McConathy. Know this shit? I do know this shit. It's just like I, I don't know. I, I always remember her as MC. Like who who needs McConathy or Rankin when you have MC? Hopefully she doesn't mind being discussed in our pot in our podcast, which she probably doesn't listen to, but if she does, she's gonna be really disappointed with both of her two former Latin students trying to decide whether A or A E is plural. Well, I, just, I don't think she has any hope for me. <laughs> I was gonna say Let's 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 rein it back in for me and remind her that I was pretty sure AE was plural. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and and see during that whole thing where you're talking about her, I didn't even know what it related to Latin. <laughs> I was like, what, what, was, he, was he good at English? Is what I was going to ask. But then you're like, oh, oh it's probably a Latin root. Okay. Next time she sees you, she's going to stab you. Did you know that uh, sheath means vagina in Latin? <laughs> It's where you put your sword, sheath. I, I, I did know that. I'm, I'm quite aware. This, MC, this is what he took away from Latin. And I didn't How learn that in did, class. I know you didn't. You took three years, right? Yep. Passum passe. <laughs> oh, my God. All these good Latin jokes. I, I wait, mean, wait, what is the thing that they say all the time? Um, nevertheless, was that the, the phrase that came oh, up yeah, like in uh, every translation? Uh, I always remember us saying stuff like, would have been something, like it was a weird type of, you know, verb declining that was like. Pluperfect. I don't, pl- I just, yeah. these, sentences, these, these phrases are in my head, but I don't think I know what they mean. Yeah, I, I have to admit, like, I unfortunately haven't had to use too much of my, like, what what is it, like, verb, dic- or noun, shit, now I feel really bad. Hopefully MC doesn't listen to our podcast, because she's just, like, shaking <laughs> well, if, her head at us. If it makes her feel any better, I took just as much from Latin as I took from every other class in high school. <laughs> so there's, like, declining a noun, like, and then I don't think that's what it's called for verbs. It's, like, verb... Just, just tenses, right? Or you know, something, something, a verb. And, uh, anyway, I didn't keep much of that, but what I did keep was a lot of like a lot of the roots. And so I'll be reading, not reading, but like I was in um, Rome, and there are a few Italian signs here and there. And like, I would hope I could, there's more than a few Italian signs well, in Rome. <laughs> sure. Sorry, what I meant to say is there's a few that I could read because of my Latin roots knowledge. Right and and I, I had no hope for like the noun declensions and the verb tenses in in Italian, but like I could see a set of words and be like, I'm pretty sure it means something along these lines based on the Latin roots that I knew. The other thing that was cool is a bunch of the buildings have Latin uh, like stamps on them. I don't know. There's probably a better word for that. But like when the when the you know the emperor built them, it would say like Julius Caesar built this in the year A.D. whatever. Um, and I just thought that was cool. I could read those. I could say, hey, that says Caesar or Augustus Caesar built this in you know and and like our, what was the word F I C was like the root for built or did. So it was, you could say like, okay, he did this in such and such a year. So I thought that was cool. 
but I haven't really kept up with the dec- you know declining nouns and verb tenses and things like that. There was something like will have, would have done or something. There was some like now or verb. Nevertheless came up a lot never, too. Was it nevertheless? Yeah. There was always stuff where we'd do it and, and we'd be like, well, the best translation is really nevertheless. And we're like, how? Uh, we had, so, in our Latin class, we used to do these translation tests where she would give us some big story and she yeah. would say, one part of this story will be your translation test. I'm not going to tell you what part it was. And so the general strategy, what everyone did, was that they translated the whole story the night before and just memorized the whole thing. And that way, when they saw it on the test, they just shit out the thing they memorized, and that's how you got your grade. (laughs) Um, That's a lot of work that I just (laughs) did not do in high school. Um, Yeah, we did have MC on as a guest, and she could say... The last one that Rob did was a 58, and the last one that Aaron did was a 46. <laughs> like, well, I didn't ever do too hot on those either, sadly. There was one translation test where she told us what the high grade and the low grade was. Uh-huh. And oh, no. uh, there was another guy in our class that was also not great at, at the Latin. We'll call him John. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, just, just to give him a generic, regular name, John. <laughs> And oh my god! And uh, she said the low grade was a four, and the high grade was like a ninety-two or something like that. And I was like, well, at least I didn't get a four because John probably got the four. No, two people got fours, which is what she didn't mention. Um, so that's probably the lowest grade I've ever gotten on a test that I tried on. Oh man, that's good. Got a four. That's good. I'm not sure why she gave me a four. I think like the first three words I might have memorized correctly. <laughs> oh man! See, and that's that's where I always I always did like a fifty or a sixty, and it was based on the fact that I knew the the words pretty well. I just wasn't as good at the memorizing the noun declensions and the verb tenses, and so I'd just fuck up all of those. But I could generally say so and so was doing this, or so and so built this, or. My general strategy with Latin was just to translate all of the individual words and then just see how you could create some kind of sentence out of it. Like, oh, with these words, I guess what's going to happen is this thing. And then, you know, that was rarely the thing that happened. Yeah, I I got you. That was, yeah. We probably could have put a little more effort there. Story of education. (laughs) Probably could have put a little more effort there replies to everything I ever did in school. (laughs) One of my favorites. Did you ever take um, AP Physics? Nope. So, Parsons, Mr. Parsons. Yeah, maybe he listens to our podcast. Doubt it. Doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, his his grading was one of my favorites. Because what he would do is he had these weekly quizzes. And basically the way it worked, the quiz was like five or ten questions. Every Friday, something like that. And... uh, he would each each question was worth the number of people who uh, are in the class divided by the number of people who got it right. So if there's 30 people in the class and 30 people got it right, the question was worth one point. So if everyone got every question right, you get a 10, and then that's 100. So the the, the 10 is the 100. But if only half the people got a question right, then it was 30 divided by 15, and that question was worth 2. So the people who got it right could get like a, a, an 11, while other people would get like an 8 or whatever, because they only got, you know, whatever. 9, I guess. Uh, but what's funny is our friend David would literally always fuck everyone. It just wasn't fair. It seemed like every time, and it would switch off. We have another friend named Shemi. I think he took the took the prize a few times. Where was he was the only in that class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we had a lot of you know. There's a few times where maybe like five of us got it right, five or six of us, or something like that. But more more than once, there was a time when a question was worth thirty points, and if no one got it right, it was just removed. But more than once, there was a time when a question was worth 30 points because David was the only one who got it right. <laughs> and this completely... So everyone else is sitting around with like 15s or 20s and David's sitting with a 50. <laughs> and like, so it's 50 and then 25 or it's like the next closest. 
Uh, God, that was funny. So then he'd have to curve it because he would throw it off every fucking time. Uh, so anyway, we're we're gonna bring him on one time. Chris told me that with the uh, CPA exam, the way it works is it's on computer, and the questions get harder the mm, more you get adaptive. correct. And so you know you failed the test if you start getting really simple questions. Yeah, so that happened to me with the GRE. Um, the GRE is pretty easy in math, by the way. I I think like, yeah, anyway. Uh, but I got a question. I was doing the GRE in math, and it's on a computer, and it's adaptive. And I got a question, and when I got this, I can even remember the question where I knew I got an 800 because I was like, this, d- nope, this question is so hard. <laughs> It was like, it was basically like this huge thing with like really weird exponents, and it was just like prove that this is a prime factor of. So- and I was like, okay, I I don't even have to answer this, and I got an eight hundred because like <laughs> this question is fucking hard, and uh, yeah, it is nice because you kind of get you get a gauge of uh oh, I just got a question like what's two squared? This isn't good. Yeah, <laughs> things know? have gone poorly. Things have gone poorly, or it's like, ooh, this question's pretty hard. I think I'm, I think I'm doing well, you know. So anyway, I've gotten some feedback in the past, Aaron, how much people are kind of bored whenever I talk about baseball. So I just thought, I, yeah, I just thought I would talk about baseball some more. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I'm going to be honest, Rob. It's probably my favorite topic because you are the only person I've ever known that can make baseball interesting to me. Well, this is actually not going to be strictly about the game. Okay. Um, in other sports, the Hall of Fame isn't like a huge honor like it is in baseball. And I Why? Think, I think it's because in other sports, the bar isn't very high. They lit ah, a, the, okay. the, 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 Throughout baseball history, there's been a, like a lot of traditional like landmarks where if you get this ridiculously hard landmark you're pretty much assured in for the hall of fame but there are Got usually it. such high standards that like so few people get them and so the way the baseball hall of fame works is they get mostly people from the press and baseball writers vote yeah and you have to get 75 percent of the vote to get in okay so if 75 percent of writers or the baseball hall of fame voters vote you in then you're in the Hall of Fame. Um, last week, right after we really, after right after we recorded our podcast, the Baseball Hall of Fame results came out. Okay. And there's two things in it that piss me off, and this is what they are. <laughs> okay. Okay. Start off by saying they're anonymous. You, but they're anonymous votes. They release all the ballots, but you don't know who voted for what. Got A it. lot of writers release their ballot and say, "This is what I'm doing." Oh, okay. And so usually what they do is all the guys who release their ballots beforehand, people look at, like, who's doing well based on that. And every time what they do is they drop people's percentage points a couple points from there because the people who are anonymous inevitably vote for less people. So as a Baseball Hall of Fame voter, you can vote for up to 10 players, but you don't have to vote for any. So you can turn an empty ballot... Or you can turn in ten players. Okay. Or six. Or four or three or two. Yeah, okay. And then the other thing is, this is changing. This is Some players are still got in, but you could only appear on the... You could only be oh, voted yeah. for if you got at least 5% of the previous year's vote. And you could only be voted for for up to ten years. Which is changing yeah, down okay. to six years. So a lot of players are already in the six-year oh. range. Some of the ones are still grandfathered in that have the full ten years. Okay. Okay. That's the background. Okay. Two things that piss me off. The steroid players. Some writers say they used steroids, they cheated, they're never in. Yeah. Some writers say, well, drugs have been a part of baseball for its entire history. This is just a different kind of drug. The old-timey players did LSD or cocaine cocaine or... Anything else they could get their hands on to make them better. This is not new, so I don't know why we're making this a big deal. I'm going to vote him in. That's the camp I'm in, if you couldn't tell by the bias I had in my voice. <laughs> um, so, that being said, that's not what pisses me off. Okay. During the, hall of, or during the steroid era, two of the prime players who used steroids 
were caught using steroids and were amazing baseball players are Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Yeah, okay. Twelve voters voted for Roger Clemens and not Barry Bonds. Interesting. They are both unquestionable Hall of Fame numbers, but they both definitely use steroids. So there are 12 people who think that Roger Clemens is good enough to be in the Hall of Fame on his skill level and steroids don't bother them. But, but still don't think the all-time home run leader quite reaches the ball. Ever. Ever. Right? So of like, ever. Yeah. So it's like... What episode number was it that people should go back and reference where we talked all about this? Like 20 uh, Maybe something? I'll insert a little thing here where I'll okay. cut into the podcast and say that because I ain't looking it up right now. 26. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But th- we did it. We did an episode on on like the drugs in baseball, right? Yeah. And... I, yeah, I thought that was a cool discussion about like, yeah, it's not cool and we're glad that nobody does it anymore, but you know, it's part of the history and it's like just ignoring the history and things like that. But you're saying that, okay, if you've got this stance that you did drugs, you don't deserve to be in it, okay, fine. I'm not necessarily in that camp, but that's your decision. What you have a bigger problem with is that people could, could let go of that say, I don't care about the drugs, and then vote for Clements and completely leave Bonds out when it is clear that Bonds, if Clements can be in the Hall of Fame, so should Bonds because he's the the all-time best hitter ever. Right? Pretty much, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. I just, it, 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 it shows that there is a personal bias because Barry Bonds is not the nicest, mm. most friendly guy. But the Baseball Hall of Fame shouldn't be based on the Good People Hall of Fame. Mm. Right. So they're taking a personal stance against Barry Bonds as a person. And I don't think that that is what you should do when this is such a huge honor in the game. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So what percentage did Clements get? Oh, neither of them are even close. Like they're not going to make the Hall of Fame ever. Like there's enough people in the youth steroids never camp that that they're just never going to make it. Okay. Which is sad for me. And I think it's bad for baseball. But – you know that's where we are right now. Where that 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 seems to be overall. I think they I think they both fell into like the forty to fifty percent range. Okay. There's like four hundred okay, so something the... voters. So twelve voters out of the four hundred is oh, not okay. a huge thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, just like there's okay there's twelve people. God. <laughs> and all twelve of You're... those ballots that did that were anonymous. Yeah. No okay. one. No one manned up and said, "Hey, I'm that asshole." <laughs> Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I can, I can see off. that. Um, okay, so that's number one. That that pisses me off at a scale of a five. The next one's like a pissing okay, so me off. Okay, so one to like ten. Okay, so one to ten. That one's a five. We're about to go into eight territory. Yeah. Okay, so this one makes you cry. Like, it's enough pain that you're going to tear up a little. Edgar Martinez or, or got 70.4% of the vote, meaning he didn't make it again. Okay. The thing that pisses me off here is a couple fold. One, he is at 78% before the anonymous ballots came in. Mm, okay. Uh, meaning, okay, so here are the arguments against Edgar's Hall of Fame. He played designated hitter for much of his career. Okay. And there is currently no designated hitters in the Hall of Fame. Interesting. Okay. Um, people think... That you're only playing half the game, so why, why do you get to be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, okay. Um, on the same Hall of Fame ballot, Trevor Huffman got in. And he's a... He's a closer. He's a pitcher. Oh. He is the first closer to make the Hall of Fame. He's the first guy who his entire career, he was spent just pitching one inning at most per game. He never okay. picked up a bat and swung it. He only okay. played half the fucking game. Secondly, before Eggers' knees went to shit, he played uh-huh. third base. And he has more career oh. starts at third base than Trevor Huffman has at pitcher. So he played more oh, wow. of both halves of the fucking game than Trevor Huffman did. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, That's rough. So it's like, will you... Pick a fucking stance to have. Yeah. I understand that Eggier's Hall of Fame candidacy 
is not as sure as a lot of other players. He didn't reach any of those major platforms. Like, yeah, those okay. plateaus, I should say. He didn't have 3,000 yeah. hits. He didn't hit 500 home runs. But he did have a career batting average above 300%. He did have, like, 2,600 hits. He was yeah. clutch. Like, there are, like, so many videos of Edgar winning games at the end. One of the best pitchers of all time, Pedro Martinez, is quoted as saying the, the batter in his entire career he wanted to face the least was Edgar Martinez. Wow. Um, it just, like... Why would you make designated hitter a position you can play if you're not going to allow players that did it into the Hall of Fame? Or, yeah. They have an award they give out to the best designated hitter of the year. Every year. Okay. Do you know what it's called? Uh, Pinch hitter plus plus. It's called the Edgar Martinez Award. (laughs) So, seriously, (laughs) go fuck yourself. (laughs) Oh, I did not expect that. That that threw me for a loop. <laughs> Baseball gives out a trophy in his honor every year, <laughs> and they won't let him in the Hall of Fame. Wow. Um, okay, wait. How many years does he have left? Because I need to become a baseball writer. This was his ninth. He's got one year left. Oh, no. Yeah, next year is the last year. He's no. been sitting at 70 for three years. You this, see- is my new, this is my new <laughs> cause. This is... This is <laughs> wow. I just... I can't... like. He punished him for playing half the game, but then they let another guy in for half the game. And unquestionably, when David Ortiz reti- like when it is eligible for the Hall of Fame, they're going to let him in. And David Ortiz was a worse defender, played less defense. He was just on a bigger market team. He was in Boston his entire career. Boston's mm. a big market. A lot of the writers are from the Northeast. Like, a lot of baseball writers are from the Northeast. Uh. David Ortiz is going in. First ballot, I guarantee it. And it fucking sucks that David Ortiz has won nine Edgar Martinez awards and he doesn't Edgar Martinez isn't even in the fucking Hall of Fame. Like when they list David Ortiz's <laughs> accolades, nine of them are Edgar Martinez I, awards, the non-Hall of Famer. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't wow. understand it. I, I yeah, saw I, like I saw the 78%. I went to bed thinking it's this year. It's going to be cool. Year. I woke up in the morning and the entire Mariners subreddit is crying. <laughs> so let me ask, uh, was this the same feeling as the morning of January, I believe, 20th, 2017? No, because I knew that that one I knew was sorry. Night. I went to or bed sorry. knowing. Not January 20th, November 11th, yeah. 2016? I, like, you went to was, bed knowing, yeah. Because like, yeah, God. No, that was probably worse. Yeah, but this is pretty bad. That was probably a nine. This is an eight. This, yeah, okay. Oh man, yeah, that's that's infuriating. The baseball wow. voters, a, it needs to be public, and b, mm. they should have some type of thing where they they find the average ballot, and if there's so many standard deviations away from it, like maybe three, three standard deviations, yeah. let the huge difference from the ballot, then you don't get to vote yeah. anymore because you are not taking this shit seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm, I agree with that. Like if there, you're there are guys yeah. who didn't vote for Ken Griffey Jr. because they didn't believe any player should have 100% of the vote. How yeah, see, dumb of stupid. a fucking reason to not vote for someone is that? Yeah, that's like, stupid. You are saying that you believe you should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's, that's stupid. <laughs> like, this is one of the well, biggest Hall of Fame classes ever. And there's four players going in this year. And mm-hmm. like three of them... I wouldn't put a Fred at Vagir. Wow. Which one would you have? Which Chip, one's the... Chipper Jones. Chipper Jones is unquestionable Hall of Famer. And with Chipper Jones going in, the Atlanta, the mid-90s Atlanta Braves now have the record for the most Hall of Famers on one lineup. Oh, wow. Well, that's... Yeah, that's rough. Okay, so this, this happened last Monday? Uh, yeah, I think Monday or Tuesday. I feel for you, buddy. I'm sorry. That's it for baseball corner. I'm sorry. I just had to share my frustration with the voters. It's um, okay. I should start getting into journalism as my goal of voting in the Hall of Fame. I don't think I can get there in a year, though. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I was going to say, I think you would be a good candidate for it, right? I don't know. I don't know about that. You don't that. know? Maybe. I just don't know if, what makes these guys experts. 
I don't know I who mean, should get to vote. Should it be former players? Is that fair? Because there's probably a lot of biases there. I don't know. The, yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't know, know what the right way to do the Hall of Fame is. Hmm. Maybe you make it objective and you just make a list of accomplishments that you know it's a moving target because you know. Before it used to be 500 home runs, but with home runs hit the way they are nowadays, that's not going to be as rare as it used to be. So maybe make it like a yeah. moving target where you have to be in the top so many percentage of all baseball players of all time or something. I don't know. I don't know what the answer yeah. is, but the fucking writers voting on it has been poor. Hmm. How can you just yeah. erase the early 2000s and late 90s of baseball, which is what they're doing by not voting the steroid players in? You're just erasing an era of baseball. There's going to be a whole section of baseball that's just missing from the Hall of Fame. Because almost no players that were amazing in that era Did fucking escaped. Not... Yeah, escaped that whole thing. Yeah. All right, well, that's enough baseball. Enough baseball. I'm frustrated. Baseball. Let's talk about something else. Um, so he- here's one thing I want to do. Last week, uh, we talked a little bit about this cake Supreme Court case. Oh, and I don't want to again. I don't. I don't want to talk about that case. We're not going to talk about that case. But what I what it reminded me of is that I have a fiery love for uh, the Supreme Court. Doesn't mean that I love everything that they do. I just love reading their opinions i love the impact that the supreme court has had over the years sometimes it's awesome sometimes it sucks sometimes they make great decisions sometimes they make terrible decisions um so like a really famous terrible decision would be korematsu versus the united states have you ever heard of that isn't that the japanese internment camp one yeah uh where the supreme court uh famously was like yeah sure you can intern people based on race like, literally imprison them based on their race. That that makes sense. Um, however, then, ten years after that, it was one of the most badass courts at the time, and they unanimously uh, uh, opposed segregation in Brown versus the Board of Education, which unanimous Supreme Court votes are not that super common. And so probably one of the most influential, influential Supreme Court opinions of all time was unanimous. Um, so like they, they do some, it's still fascinating to me to see them do shitty stuff <laughs> like uh, Korematsu versus the United States to at least look at the arguments and, and it's it's fascinating. You're going to like a snapshot of history and how people felt about shit at the time. Exactly. And, and that's the other thing is there. So it's one of those other things where probably my favorite, maybe I should do one on my favorite Supreme Court case of all time, maybe we can talk about it later, is Plessy versus Ferguson. And that's like the antithesis of Brown versus the Board. That was in 1896 when the Supreme Court said, yeah, segregation is cool. Um, and the reason why it's one of my favorites is because there was one justice who dissented. And he wrote, he, you know, he wasn't perfect. He wrote some other opinions that weren't, <laughs> weren't the greatest, at least compared to modern times. But his opinion in Plessy versus Ferguson is still one of my favorite like documents of all time because he is scathingly upset about the opinion, and it's very clear in just his writing. Like he, uh, you don't even hear him say it; he's just writing, and it's quite clear that he thinks they've made a huge mistake. And of course, they did, and they reversed that decision fifty-eight years later. Why it took fifty-eight years? I don't know. It's because humanity blows. Curing racism is not something that's even happened yet, and we're that's, 150 well, that's, years post the Emancipation Proclamation. So that's true. That's nope, true. I'm not at all surprised that it takes time because we're still living with it. Yeah, that that is true. But you know, every year you see you when you, you know hindsight is 2020. You look back and you're like, how the fuck could this have taken 20 years or 50 years? Um. But the one that I want to talk about that's cool is is a different um, religious like religious freedom case, and that one would be Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. Mm-hmm. And um, do you know which one that is? Uh, I I mean I remember the whole Hobby Lobby situation. Was this the abortion one, uh, or is this the no? Okay, you, no, you just explain it. I, I'm not going to keep guessing at shit that I don't, obviously don't know. 
So it's basically, um, and, and what I want to talk about is actually less of this case and more um, kind of some of the stuff leading up to it, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so this case was about how basically the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act signed by Obama, which is everyone knows as Obamacare, uh, required that health insurance companies have a certain like minimum bar of health coverage. So that bar, what one of those things was you have to pay for contraception. And there was a lot of people who were like, so first of all, there was a lot of argument from the right that was like, I shouldn't have to pay for X, or I shouldn't have to pay for Y, or, you know, I'm young, I shouldn't have to pay for coronaries of old people, or whatever. Those arguments are the dumbest thing I've ever heard, if not the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> because, like, that, this is the way all insurance, this is what insurance is. Before Obamacare, that's the way insurance worked. Like, I don't get in a car crash every day, yet I pay for car insurance. I pay for people's car insurance who drive riskier than me. Like, that is the essence of insurance, that when we pool our risk together, it's still more valuable to me to pay for car insurance than to get into an accident and have to pay for all of the things that happen as a result of that. But at the end of the day, insurance, like, literally the word should mean paying for shit that doesn't apply to you. 99% of the time. That is what insurance is. Like, it no offense. It has a ring to it. It, do, it doesn't. But, like, flood insurance, same thing. If, you, if your area requires that you have flood insurance, that is you paying for something that 99% of the time you don't need. Right? But the other, 10, the other 1% of the time you might need. And so every year your insurance company is probably paying out some flood claims in other parts of the country or wherever but not on yours. And that is you paying for other things. So anyway, that's point one. This whole argument of I shouldn't have to pay for X is fucking dumb because that is what insurance is. Number two, there's the argument that, well, I shouldn't have to pay for contraceptives. That's expensive. That's also dumb because contraceptives for nine years is less expensive than a birth. Than a child being born. And so if someone doesn't want a baby, then it's cheaper for you to pay for their contraceptives for nine years than for them to get pregnant and have a baby. Right? <laughs> so there's that. It's actually, it's also, it's not even like, should they pay for it or not? Insurance companies want to pay for it because it's cheaper than the alternative. And then... Uh, number so that those are kind of two arguments against the contraceptives, but the biggest argument was Hobby Lobby's argument. We're a Christian organization. We're we're a people, and as people, we we have a religious right to not have to pay for something that we do not support religiously. We do not support contraceptives. So that's why it's Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. Okay, um, Sylvia Burwell was at the time, actually, it used to be a different case, whoever the first uh, head of the Department of Health and Human Services was, I forget her name, Sibelius, something like that. Uh, and then it got changed over to Sylvia Burwell when she became the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So anyway, they sued the, de the Department of Health and Human Services to say, we shouldn't have to pay for contraceptives for our employees. And they were like, well, that doesn't make any sense. So the bigger reason I wanted to talk about this is because of the, the cool things that happened leading up to this case. Because one of the, one of the cool things, and I'm going to read a little bit about this, is that long ago, there, there basically was this thing called the Sherbert test. Okay, and this like is the Sherbert. way you like Sherbert. And maybe people called it Sherbet. I don't know. But I'm just going to read a little synopsis that I wrote. So basically, a member of this church, Seventh-day Adventist Church, was, was fired for working on Saturdays due to her religious beliefs. So the Supreme Court at the time, this was in 1963, Sherbert versus Werner, basically just like they... 
people they called it the, the Sherbert test, but they could all they also use this thing called strict scrutiny, and basically um, they applied that to religious freedom cases, which didn't used to be the case. So it used to be a different rule. But what the Supreme Court loves to do, and this kind of goes back to our cake discussion, is they like to apply rules. So this is the rule that they came up with, and it was known as the Sherbert test. They basically said that, one, does the claimant have a sincerely held religious belief? So remember, we talked about that before, sincerely held or deeply held or whatever. And more and more recently, that question has come to believe, come to like not count anymore because you could claim almost anything. But typically they would say, okay, it's, is it sincerely held or is this some douchebag just making something up? More and more, I think that they would accept douchebags making something up because it's really hard to define whether someone has a religiously held belief or sorry, sincerely held. So that's number one. Number two, this is where it starts to get interesting. The proposed government action has a substantial burden on the claimant's ability to act on said belief. So that's basically like, you know, because she, so basically she got denied unemployment benefits. So she got fired for not working on Saturdays. Then the government said, we're not going to give you unemployment because you got yourself fired for a dumb reason. Right. So basically the government, that's what the government did, but the government basically had to basically said that because of what you did, like did the government action, does it have a substantial burden on the claimant? So yes, it does. The government has said that they will not give you unemployment if you get fired because you won't work on Saturdays because of religion. Right. So, so far those, they're called the first and second prongs of the Sherbert test one and two. So she has a sincerely held religious belief. Again, this is in 1963. (laughs) And two, the proposed government action that is not giving her unemployment has a substantial burden on her. So it's true. It does have a substantial, it has a burden on her. But then you go to the third prong. (laughs) So like I said, these tests can get really intense. And that's why I thought it would be cool to bring this up based on a discussion last week of like how complex some of these things can be. Number three says, if one and two, and in this case, the Supreme Court, that one and two were true, the government must prove A and B (laughs) of three, which is one, the proposed government action is in furtherance of a compelling state interest, and B, the government has pursued such action in the manner least restrictive to religion. So one and two almost always get satisfied because you can say I have. So I'll, I'll tell you the next one. (laughs) Uh, Basically in 1972, three Amish students were taken out of school at age 13 due to their parents' religious belief. Basically having too much knowledge endangered their salvation. That was literally the argument. (laughs) That they, they couldn't have salvation because they got too much knowledge, which is against the laws of state. The Supreme Court unanimously applied the Serbert test. And they said that the state was in violation of the establishment cause of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution because both one and two were satisfied of the Sherbert test and because one and two were satisfied A and B of three. They basically said that um, the taking them out of school was not the least restrictive means. They could have done something like homeschooled, but the state immediately sued and said, you can't take them out of any school at all. But this is how like homeschool came about in much more like less restrictive fashion. Right? So here's two instances in 1963. They basically said that, uh, Sherbert didn't get anything because in their opinion of a, the proposed government action was in furtherance of a compelling state interest that the the state shouldn't have to pay out insurance claims or, or sorry, not insurance claims, unemployment claims where the employee knowingly violated the company's policy. And two, there was no other least restrictive, less restrictive way for them to apply this, to, to have this law. So anyway, this is called the Sherbert Trust and those are called the three prongs. 
if you pass one and two, then the government has to prove three, which is that it's an in furtherance of a compelling state interest and is the least restrictive means by which to do that. Okay. Then later, 1972, the government was shown of whatever state it was. I forget which state. doesn't matter. The government basically said, you, you can come up with a less restrictive way of doing this. So the government sided with the Amish uh, plaintiffs and said, because the government can do this less restrictively, the go- we're going to force the government to do this in a le- less restrictive manner. So this is where shit gets fun. Because <laughs> remember, I was telling you, like back in the cake thing, uh, this has gone through a lot of things. And what's, what's interesting about the... Um, this case as well is if you remember, does Religious Freedom Restoration Act mean anything to you? No. RIFRA is what it was called. I know. Okay, Sorry. so around this time that became a huge discussion. And so this is where it got, it got a lot of fun. In 1990, um, uh, two members of the Native American church were fired after failing a drug test for peyote. Okay, so they failed the drug test. So, and this is what's cool about it. It came back up in the exact same way it came up in Sherbert. You know, 30 years prior, 27 years prior. They were denied unemployment. So, they smoked peyote as part of a religious ceremony. They got fired and then, uh, and then they applied for unemployment, and the state denied their unemployment. And this is one case where I completely agree with Scalia. Scalia wrote the opinion in 1990, and it was a 6-3 uh, opinion. And they basic, the, the Supreme Court at the time basically said, the Sherbert test is stupid. It's way too restrictive on the government. And so what they basically said is they, and this is where I use the term general applicability, because the, the new rule that they used was called the rule of general applicability, because this is what Scalia said. He said that, quote, neutral laws of general applicability do not ever violate the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, end quote. So... Um, basically he, the, the Supreme court said, why do we have to go? Why does the government, this, you know, have to go through this huge Sherbert test to prove that they weren't trying to fuck with religion in 1990 Scalia and five of the other justices basically said, look, if the state writes a law and it's generally applicable, Right? It's generally applicable. Meaning it doesn't target anyone in particular. It doesn't target anyone in particular. Then, fuck off. That's a law. Sorry. Right? So they basically said, and and so they could have just said, we're going to apply the Sherbert test to this. But they said, we're not even going to do that. The state wrote a law saying that peyote is illegal. And I'm sorry that your religion uses peyote as part of a religious ceremony, but... It's a generally applicable law. We don't have to prove, the government shouldn't have to, the state shouldn't have to prove that it's the least restrictive means of stopping peyote use or that um, they have a, you know, a compelling state interest. So the Supreme Court in 1990 basically wrote, changed case law. So anytime there's a law that wasn't written, but the Supreme Court made a statement about it, it's, it becomes what's called case law. It's not tort law, which is that the U.S. government, the, the legislature plus the, plus the president, passed a law. It is, we are the Supreme Court. This is how we interpret this thing against the Constitution. It becomes case law. So between 1963 and 1990, the case law for religious freedom cases was the Sherbert test. In 1990... The Supreme Court threw away the Sherbert test and created what's called ge- the, the rule of general applicability. Personally, I agree with that. What do you think about that before I continue? Um, I mean, I, I, the having to find the least restrictive way on religion just seems like a huge 
gift to religions that they don't know why they would get. Yeah. I tend to agree. Um, I wonder if it's because I'm not religious, right? I like I don't hold any. Well, why do religions held? have to be non? Like, have to have the like? It should. It should either be everyone. Period should have laws that are the most convenient, or that's just not the way it should be. There shouldn't be I a agree. class of people set aside where you have to particularly avoid offending. Yep, and so that's kind of what Scalia basically said: is, hey. Any dodo bird can basically say, like, who are we to say what your deeply held religious beliefs are? They can prove that. And then they can also prove that, you know, because you didn't let them smoke peyote, they don't get to talk to God. Right? And so now they can prove that it's part of their deeply held religious beliefs. And they can prove that it's restricting their religion because they don't get to talk to God. But come on. Like, this is just a general law. And the next guy can basically invent a religion that says that they need to do heroin. And are we going to let that fly because they can prove that it's a sincerely held religious belief and it substantially burdens their ability to talk with God, right? And so the Supreme Court was basically like, ah, Sherpa test is done. Let's throw that out. If you, can ba- if you, the government, can basically prove that you weren't targeting anyone. Now, if it says you can't eat thin, circular, unleavened wafers of bread, like that's clearly targeting catholic religion right (laughs) like you know that's okay you targeted that's not a generally applicable law no one else eats thin wafers and there's there's no the government has no compelling interest whatsoever but if this is a neutral law of general applicability then it should be fine well this is where fun shit even more happens congress lost their minds okay so when this happened, um, Congress was like, holy shit, we've, we don't like this, and people don't like this. They don't like the fact that the Supreme Court can come in here and change the way um, the Constitution is interpreted on religious case laws or whatever. And so Congress goes in and passes what's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And that is where the Sherbert test was reintroduced, right? And so this, this, and this is important because when the Hobby Lobby case comes up, even Scalia, I think, would have agreed that, sorry, this law is generally applicable. And even though he's conservative, he's a very strict uh, justice. And I think, I mean, I don't know, I, I, this is just a guess, but... I wouldn't be so far as like if if his ruling from 1990 was still in place as, you know, neutral laws of generally general applicability should apply, then he would have said, sorry, this law about contraceptives was not targeting any religion. It just was part of the law to make things economically cheaper or whatever it was. And the government wasn't targeting Hobby Lobby. They weren't targeting Christianity. They just said, hey, Women are, should have access to contraceptives for free, right? So that's what makes this history so important to the Hobby Lobby case. But what's even more interesting <laughs> is that before they even applied RIFRA and the fact that RIFRA, um, like, re, reapplies the Sherbert test, I guess, to religious freedom... The first question before the court was, can corporations be considered persons with regard to the way RIFRA was written? So when when Congress wrote the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and they said that, blah, 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 when your religious rights are impeded, it should be tried on the Sherbert test. Can Hobby Lobby be considered a person under RIFRA? So... And that's where the Supreme Court said they can. So um, I think it was 5-4, basically by party lines. The conservative justices said they can. The liberal justices said they can't. Um, so, and if you, you might as, you might as, you know, the dissent is awesome. 
anytime Ginsburg writes a dissent, it's the funniest thing you've ever written. Or, sorry, ever read. Because everything she says is like, like burns a little. You're like, ooh, that, that hurt. And you can tell she's like really upset by... Uh, so, like her first statement, I even quoted it in this thing I wrote. She says the first, like the first sentence she wrote... In the decision of startling breadth, the court holds that commercial enterprises, including corporations, along with partnerships and sole proprietorships, can opt out of any law they judge incompatible with their sincerely held religious beliefs. And that's because two things. One, Congress passed RIFRA. And two, the Supreme Court in, in Burwell versus Hobby Lobby said that corporations were persons. And so that threw a bunch of sh- so she's basically saying, look what you basic what you just said is that corporations can opt out of laws based on pretty much anything they cl- they can claim to believe because first Congress passed RIFRA and two you the Supreme Court the the people who wrote the majority opinion just said that uh, corporations are persons so. She she goes on to says says like some pretty pretty cool stuff <laughs> like she it's very like very harsh but anyway the reason why I wanted to talk about this is just because like I think it's fascinating how these tests can go through how they evolve over time that really this question of how should we like. The modern era of how should religious religious freedoms be evaluated started in 1963 with Sherbert versus Werner. And then, you know, it goes through a brief period of never mind that Tess is dumb in 1990 to never mind that test, the Sherbert test is back in action, I think, in 1992 or 1994 when the U.S. government or Congress passed RIFRA, which I believe Clinton signed into law. Um, and so then it comes all the way to today when both corporations can be seen as people and two, they have deeply held religious beliefs, which means three, when you apply RIFRA, they can deny contraceptives to their employees based on religious, religious beliefs. So let me ask you this. Could I start my own religion? The deeply held belief is that human sacrifice is the weight of God. Murder somebody and then say that your law doesn't apply because my deeply held religious belief is that human sacrifice is necessary to achieve nirvana. Yeah, so two things. I think – so th- this is this is the problem is that one of the things – the Supreme Court very rarely changes their uh, – what they call like their tests. So they typically have tests. And the reason why they write these tests, like the Sherbert test, is so that the lower courts can adjudicate cases properly without having to have every case go to the Supreme Court. And the lower courts can basically say, we applied the Sherbert test and we view this. The problem that Scalia and the other five justices saw in 1990 was that the Sherbert test was too subjective. It is way the, the first prong of the Sherbert test is the claimant has a sincere, sincerely held religious belief. Okay, like unless you want to start getting into the business of evaluating whether someone's beliefs are quote sincerely held or not, you're you're gonna have a a, a problem, right? Like that that's not easy. And you know someone's going to get pissed off. Like, where do you draw the line? The line has to be drawn somewhere. And that's why in 1990, the Supreme Court said, let's not do that. Let's make the test really simple. Look at the law. Is it generally applicable? If the answer is yes, then it, then it's fine, right? Unless the plaintiff can prove a that the law was passed in order to burden their beliefs, then it's it's not. So that's why I say today... They'd have to apply the Sherbert test. And I think, one, typically the Supreme Court views most beliefs as sincerely held. They very rarely even get into that question. So the first prong is almost always approved. Two, 
Does it have a substantial burden on the claimant's ability to act on said belief? You could very easily prove by saying the act of sacrifice is, you know, bringing me closer to God. Just like the peyote guys. Smoking peyote brings me closer to God. And look, you can go back and forth with me if you want, but I'm sorry, like, those are the same. I think both are dumb to get you closer to God. Anything that you think you do to get closer to God I think is kind of stupid, but killing someone and peyote, who are you to say what is a true religious belief? And you don't even know God's actual opinion. Maybe he is for that. Like maybe the Mayans were right. I don't know. I don't think so because it's fucking stupid in my personal opinion. But in terms of trying to like evaluate this, if you can deeply hold the belief that this brings you closer to God, right? So because those first two prongs are passed, then you have to go into the third prong, which means the government has to, one, prove that this is in furtherance of a compelling state interest. And they would say the government has the, uh, not the, not even the authority, the, uh, can't think of the word. Uh, crap. I'll think of the word later. They, they ha- sorry, they have the responsibility to provide life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to everyone, which means that uh, you killing someone denies that individual of those rights. Now, if the person is a willing participant, that's going to muddy the waters a little bit. (laughs) Um, And then the government has to prove that it's the least restrictive means to further that thing. And, And that's a thing where... Here's, here's the problem that I have with some of the conservative justices is they are all for this Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. You bring the case that you just mentioned up and they're going to be all, all against it, right? And, and that's one of the things that's frustrating. And, and that's one of the things that like while I don't agree with Scalia on most of his opinions, I wholeheartedly agree with that opinion because I think this rule, this Sherbert test is way too complex and stupid. And if you, between 1990 and 1992, if you had brought your human sacrifice case to the Supreme Court, they would have said, sorry, not murdering is a uh, generally applicable law. Nope. <laughs> like, you don't get to do that. Whereas now, the government has to prove that this is in furtherance of a compelling state interest. And then they have to prove that it's the least restrictive means. And, well, if the person is a willing participant... Is that the least restrictive means? Whereas the government could just say, no, like stabbing anyone in the chest is just illegal regardless of whether they were willing or not. And we do that just because, you know, we as a society choose to not allow that. Like, we, we don't really care whether it's the least restrictive means to the Mayan religion. It's We just don't do that. Like, that's not cool. So, like, you could make the argument that that could fly. I can guarantee that it wouldn't. The Supreme Court would come up with a way to not let it pass the Sherbert test. Um, but th- And that's, that's kind of the thing, is that the Supreme Court always writes these tests. And they try to apply these tests. But currently, in the realm of religious freedom, the test is typically, the Sherbert test is what is applied. Because the Religious Freedom Restoration Act requires that that test be applied during re- religious freedom cases. So, anyway, I just thought I'd bring that up. Thought you might be interested in it. Um, I can talk about the Supreme Court for days. It's it's the coolest shit ever. Ah, <laughs> uh, they. Yeah, I don't. It doesn't mean I agree with them on everything. Um, but you know, I just wish there were a way to make it actually nonpartisan, which there isn't. I know you can't eliminate bias. People have been trying for centuries, but I just wish there was a way. So. One of the things that I also love about the Supreme Court is, regardless of their opinion, all of them get to write an opinion if they want, or join one of the others. So there's always one person who writes the majority, and then one person who writes the dissent. But any justice can write any opinion they want. And so on this particular case, it's pretty awesome, Um, uh, Breyer and Kagan uh, joined Ginsburg's dissent, but then they wrote their own dissent. That was literally one one sentence. We need not and do not decide whether either for-profit corporations or their owners may bring claims under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Which basically means they were saying, what in the fuck is happening? Like, 
this is this is this really happening right now? Like, are we really applying a law that was supposed to apply to human beings to a corporation? Like, what in the fuck? <laughs> so, I, I just love like while it may not always be the best decision, there's always some type of opinion there, and that's one of the cool things. That so the guy who dissented in Plessy versus Ferguson, his name was Justice Harlan. He was quoted in, uh, I believe it was Renquest. Not Renquest. It can't have been Renquest. Renquest was in like the 90s or something. Um, let me look that up real quick here. Who wrote the Warren, the Warren Court? So Chief Justice Warren wrote the opinion, and his opinion quoted Harlan. So what's really cool is a lot of times when the Supreme Court reverses earlier decisions that they made, they'll quote the dissenters. And saying, like, you know, based on the things that have happened over time, like, this is what we believe. And this dissenter was was really correct at the time. And just no one was smart enough to listen to him or her. Um, so. Yeah, so we don't have to talk about cake. What, what do you think about uh, Rifra and the Sherbert test? No, Matt, we already answered that. I throw it out, but. I just don't think you should be, you shouldn't apply rules to religion that you don't apply to everyone else. Yeah, I so that's one of my other problems is it's like, especially with the Sherbert test, it's like I can make up a religion and like who are you? Like literally philosophically, who are you to tell me it's not deeply held? And and that's the other reason I fucking hate those words like deeply held or sorry sincerely held religious belief like what does that it's un- even it's unprovable mean? that's what the problem yeah, is it's unprovable it's in, unprovable in a right? court like, of law you've got something that's unprovable which is unacceptable yeah like that's just so dumb to me so like is it sincerely held uh and, you know that's the problem with one of these things is a lot of these tests are subjective <laughs> Well, that is 34 weeks in the books. Um, if you've listened to all 34 episodes, you should go rate us on iTunes and say that we're great. I agree. Or at least I hope you say that we're great. Otherwise, you've just been wasting your time. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go give us a four-star review, I guess I'd read that too. Yeah, but it's like, I've listened to 34 episodes, one star, it's terrible. Like, <laughs> why didn't you stop at three? Like, just... <laughs> You just love to poke yourself in the eye with a fork? Like, why did you do this? I mean, and keep coming back if you want more sweet, sweet baseball yeah. and Supreme Court news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, not what really we... news. We're talking about shit that's like, in your case, years old, and in my case, a week old and boring. Um, <laughs> I personally love hearing about baseball because it's like it's a facet of society that i don't know anything about and i think honestly rob you explain it more interestingly than anyone else oh thanks ah <laughs> uh, button for real uh come visit us on facebook yes send us an email still got nothing in email but uh, at email.com god that would be a great email server to have at email.com whoever I'm, has that is winning i'm sure someone has that <laughs> is it even legal to have that I don't know. Let's see. Email.com. Uh, weird. I don't, I don't know. It, actually, it might not be a possible. I don't know. I bet if you did have it, though, you'd get a lot of emails you didn't want to get. True. Very Whenever true. they used to ask me for emails when I was like a young, young lad, I thought I was super uh-huh. clever because I would make my email address no email at currently.com. And now I realize that whoever has currently.com probably get a lot of video game, you know, requests for verification. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I use Mailinator a lot. Have you ever used that? Nope. Never used anything but Gmail. So if you need, tra- if you need a trash box for just like, you know, clicking an activation link or you think something's going to be spam, you can use Mailinator.com. You just do like blah, blah, blah at Mailinator.com. And it's all public. So anyone else can see your mail. But, like, you don't care. You think it's going to be spam. Anyway. So you get, like, Aaron Roney at Mailinator.com. And they'll send, like, stupid shit to it. And then I don't have to deal with it. Does anyone deal with it? 
Yeah, so someone else can log in and see Aaron Roney at at mailinator.com, but I don't care if they see it. Like it's just my spam shit. Cuz like I was I thinking about like I just I don't want to buy a new car. I just want to test drive some cars just to see how they feel driving them. Yeah. And they always send you like a million emails and a million phone calls. So, can I get like a fake phone number too? Oh, I that I don't I'm sure probably, but I I don't know. I, and a use, fake, um, I need a fake ID, too, because I don't even want to tell them my name, because they call so <laughs> much. I still get calls from when I test drove cars in 2014. I was like, hey, you still looking for that Mustang? I'm like, bro, four years ago, no. I bought a car. Leave me alone. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, well, next time, just do something like Robbie G at, at Mailinator.com. <laughs> And uh, you could, the thing is, you don't need a password, but anyone can look at it. But you don't care. It's just spam mail, right? All right. Well, that's been a bit of a tangent. So yeah. see you next week. Hey, Aaron. Anything else? Got nothing.